All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? Uh, I am Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? Is it fucking hot? I'm not even in my house right now. I had to leave my house because apparently whatever was overloading the power grid where I live just blew it out. No power. No power at the house. No power in the neighborhood. 99 degrees outside. And I can just see the future of our country. <laughs> I just, uh, no, there's just that moment where you're like, when did, how is this going to hold up? I don't know anything about power grids. Do you? I have no idea how they work. I do know that things get overloaded and people want to be comfortable like myself. I've got the air conditioner on. Is it my fault? I turned my air conditioner off and it, it still didn't come on for hours. And then there's the whole process of like, how do I eat everything in my refrigerator before it goes bad? That's actually, sadly, the upside of a blackout is uh, really assessing uh, what's in the fridge, what can go bad relatively quickly, and how to kind of pace your day with the eating of what's in the fridge. And then not, not to mention the freezer. I mean, that shit's going to go. So it's been an exciting day of consumption, out of necessity, out of fear of throwing things away. I don't like to throw things away. How's it going? Are you are you okay? Today, I have a veteran comic, like old school, Tom Driesen is on. Now, Tom Driesen fits into the narrative. Tom Driesen was part of the original Comedy Store crew, very good friends with David Letterman. I think when David Letterman was on my show, he was leaving my house to have dinner with Tom Driesen. Driesen is here. Here's the thing about summer is that, you know, that time, that time in between, you know, picking out the watermelon at the place where you get watermelon and then actually getting it home and however, however much time you leave the watermelon, the time between picking it, buying it, and then cutting it, that's, that's, that's an uneasy time, isn't it? I know there's bigger problems in the country, obviously. The world is on fire. Our president's a criminal. And uh, it seems like a lot of people, particularly in this country, are fucking brainwashed beyond uh, redemption one way or the other, either with just, you know, basic fascistic thoughts or those of the religious ilk, sometimes combined. That's quite a double whammy. But for me, you buy that watermelon and you just don't know, do you? You know, you can, you, I, do you know how to pick it? Have you read the instructions? You knock on it. You know, if the yellow spot's yellow, if it's uh, more round than long, it's a female, supposedly juicier. These are all things I learned in retrospect. I pretend to know that I know how to pick a watermelon, but I do it by gut, by instinct, by, by just sort of vibe. You know what I mean? Like this one has a good feeling to it. I try to, you know, look at the yellow spot. If it's yellow, it's been sitting there. It's been ripening on the vine. Fine. But you still don't fucking know. And then you get home. And when you do cut it, if it's disappointing, that's, it's really, then you have a lot of, of mediocre watermelon to eat. That you're, That's a commitment. You're in. You're in. You've got at least three or four days of, of eating watermelon going, God, it could be better could be a little sweeter it's got that weird dryness it's a little mealy and every once in a while you nail it you get a good melon and it's the best fucking thing but if you get a bad melon then you got to go back and you got to think like why what how i bet you that person who was right across from me picking melons got the good melon why didn't i get the good melon where's the justice why can't i have the luck the luck of the melon just just once or twice 
right? Because you're, you're in. You know, you're going to throw the whole melon away. It's hard to throw a whole melon away. I've done it, but it doesn't feel right. And then I got some input from people. They were like, hey, man, just buy the pieces, buy the pre-cut. Yeah, but then are you really living life? Are you really living life if you get pre-cut watermelon? Are you? So now I'm sweating because I'm at, the, uh, I'm at my office. I have an office that's sort of a processing, a processing place for stuff that's sent to me by you guys, by publishers, by labels, by this and that. And it's just sort of like uh, it's, it's a storage unit with a table in it and uh, internet connection. But I, you know, I'm glad to be here. Now I'm going to shift a little bit. I'm going to shift a little here because, you know, I got an email and I, you know, and I have concerns and, uh, you know, I'm alive and awake and trying to process information in, in this horrible heat. Things are scary and, you know, particularly how people are being treated on a day-to-day basis, how people are treating each other on a day-to-day basis. There's a shamelessness to being an asshole, to being uh, immoral, to being racist, to being sexist there's a a sort of sense of entitlement that finally a certain type of anger and insecurity and hostility has now been unleashed and that uh there's no shame in it it's righteous to be a a a fucking asshole or to be hurtful and it all comes down from the top and i don't need to really you know go into that any more than i usually do but you know there is a concern when you start talking about how immigrants are being treated at the border how in the Republican defense of that or or any or an asshole's defense, when you talk about, you know, children being held in detention centers and they're like, well, they shouldn't be coming here. Their parents shouldn't bring them here. Yeah, but that that really skips a step, doesn't it? And it, it implies something much darker in the long run. It, it implies uh, an accepted dehumanization, an accepted dismissal of their humanity. Once you start to accept that, complete dehumanization and stop seeing people as people, you know, that's sort of the, the kind of um, tide pool. That's the, the growing, that's the Petri dish of, uh, of ethnic cleansing, of a type of nationalism that uh, enables people to, uh, to not see an, uh, another type of person's humanity and just uh, not mind if they're annihilated. You, you know, I, I would hope that we're a little bit far away from that, but, but this is where it starts. Uh, intolerance, uh, righteous racism, indignation, immoral behavior, taking information about real people and seeing them as garbage. So, like, I don't want to get too heavy, but I'm going to get a little heavy. And I'm going to read this email. And this one's powerful and it takes a minute. But I think it's sort of uh, important to put out in the world. Uh, Subject line, recent history repeating itself and the guilty. Mark. I recently went back into my saved episodes of your show and heard the episode when it was revealed that the United States government was separating children from their families and holding them in deplorable conditions. I was listening to this around the 4th of July and felt compelled to write you because of the heartache and compassion in your voice when you were talking about the children and their situation. But then I didn't out of shame. Then today on MSNBC, I saw an interview with a young Guatemalan man, 17 years old, who was describing the 11 days of hell he went through in one of these camps for children. It fucking kills me to see and think about these children because the fact of the matter is that the United States government torturing children is nothing new. 
I myself oversaw the torturous imprisonment of two children when I was a U.S. Army soldier deployed to Iraq in 2006 and 7. These two children, who had to have been around 12 years old, had done nothing wrong. They had the bad luck to have had a father who may have been fighting against the Americans. I saw these children subjected day after day to cold temperatures without proper clothing, shitty food, lights never turned off, aggressive handling and interrogation procedures, all while being held in solitary confinement children and my friends slash colleagues and i did everything we were told to do because if we didn't we would just be switched out with people who would and possibly have our careers put in jeopardy so we did it we ruined those poor kids lives to save our own skin I told myself that the next guy might not be as compassionate. I wrote and didn't send letters to the New York Times to blow the story open. I told myself that kids are resilient and that they would bounce back. But those are all just excuses. I didn't have the moral courage to do the right thing. And now my self-loathing and shame is near paralyzing every fucking day I turn on the television. Every one of the Border Patrol guards who is working in those children's camps is either a monster or they are going to be as fucked for life as I am now when the gravity of what they've done hits their psyches. Not a day goes by that I don't think about this on my own. Not a day goes by that the news doesn't bring this up. I'm permanently uncomfortable around kids. My first marriage ended in part because of my post-war struggles. My new wife is a saint and the best part of my life. She wants a child someday. I don't know how I can do it. I don't know that I deserve it. If I ever stop and think about it, I feel like I sacrificed an essential part of my humanity in Iraq. What is going to happen now with hundreds more guards and and hundreds if not thousands of migrant children in this country. I don't know if our society is ready for the permanent psychological, spiritual, and moral damage we are doing to ourselves. I am sorry for dumping this all on you, but something in your words and the consistency of your words made me think you would be appreciative of the story and its implications. If you read this and feel compelled to share it on the podcast, I am good with that. Maybe someone will hear it and not repeat the same mistakes I have. That sentence, right? I don't know if our society is ready for the permanent psychological, spiritual, and moral damage we are doing to ourselves. Well, I would say a bit over half of us are not ready. And then there's the other ones who just can't get enough of it. That think it's a fine step to be taking. You know, this guy trusted me with this information in the sense that he thought yeah, this is where he chose to communicate his feelings. And uh, I, I owed it to him and to you and to myself to honor what it seems like to be a request to put this information and this experience out there. It's devastating, but it's uh, it's happening. And I think that kind of personal point of view around this particular horror is uh, is important to hear. I wanted to draw your attention also to another thing. Uh, Paul Krasner, the great Paul Krasner, one of the great satirists of the uh, 20th century, publisher of The Realist, friend of Lenny Bruce, sort of an heir to the, the sort of mission of Lenny Bruce, died on Sunday. And we reposted our 2011 interview with him. It's available in the free feed uh, wherever you're subscribed to WTF. Oh, my God, I'm sweating here. It's like a sauna. Now, before I talk to Tom Dreesen and share that interview with you, I just want to put this into context. Those of you who have been listening a long time can see I've been slowly putting together somewhat of an oral history of the comedy store uh, in the 70s. 
mostly around the the famous strike that took place and the suicide of Steve Wabitkin and, you know, the people that were involved there and who were there at the beginning. Now, Tom Dreesen, uh, who I'm going to talk to about this, was really the guy that found himself sort of in charge of representing the strikers, the the comics that uh, picketed. Uh, he had had a little history with that himself, uh, you know, coming from Chicago, I believe. So this is that story. This is a, another firsthand sort of uh, experience at the comedy store in the early 70s. And also, you know, Tom has gone on. He went on to open for Frank Sinatra for years. He's had a sort of a, a very interesting career, and he's still out there doing motivational talks and it's exciting to talk to him. I, I've sort of been putting it off. I knew he was out there. I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. But uh, this is me talking to uh, Tom Dreesen. He, he's out on tour with his one-man show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. You can go to TomDreesen.com for dates and location. But this is him at my house talking. So 50 years in show business. It's my 50th year in yeah. show business. And, and I kind of, you know, I'm at that age where I just want to, I want to, I, I want to work when I want to work. Right. I, 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 and, and enjoy my life. Yeah. You know? Can you? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I give motivation speeches yeah. for corporate America and I do it at universities, but I also do it for stand-up comedians. Uh, for stand-up comedians, I call it the joy of stand-up comedy uh-huh. and how to get there. Uh-huh. You know, to enjoy this journey that we're on as stand-up yeah. comedians, the greatest profession on the planet bar none, yeah. for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know? And 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 so that's I I want to practice what I preach. I really enjoy life. You know, I I I, I worked hard. The first half of my life, uh, I feel like God said, "I'm going to put a load on you." Yeah. But if you survive, yeah. the second half is on me. Yeah. And the second half has been on him because I, I just, you know, I've got had a great career and, and I, I, I love stand-up comedy. Well, here's so. the thing, like, you know, like, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying and I'm a guy who's been doing stand-up now, you know, more than, you know, probably more than half my life. And, uh, yeah, it's a great profession, but, you know, you know and I know that it takes its toll. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, at the beginning, like, so you, you, where you, you're from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, south side of Chicago, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. Well, what is what is what's the name? Dreesen. I'm I'm Irish Italian. Yeah, my biological father is Italian. His uh-huh. name was Polizzi, P O L I Z Z I. Uh huh. You know, uh, it's, but you it's, didn't grow up with him. No, it's like a story. It's like a soap opera. If I told you the story, I put it in what? a book with Tim Reed, and I wrote a book called yeah. Tim and Tom: An American Comedy yeah. in Black and White. And I put that in the book, and I'm writing a book now. That will explain it even further. But what is the story? Well, basically, uh, my mom had an affair with her brother-in-law, and and uh, it was her sister's husband, uh-huh. and no one knew about it. Uh-huh. No one knew about it. Right. But as I was growing up, you know, I didn't look like my brothers and sisters. I looked like my cousins. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? And <laughs> at one point, I confronted the man, Frank Polizzi. Yeah. Let me digress a little bit. He had a tavern yeah. uh, called Polizzi's Tavern. It was called the Cedar Lodge, but everybody called it Polizzi's Tavern. In my Chicago? Mother, in Harvey, or, Illinois. In Harvey, yeah. My mom was a bartender. Right. And uh, I would shine shoes in all the neighborhood bars. There yeah. was uh, 36 taverns in Harvey when I grew up. There were steel mills, factories. It was a blue-collar town. You were the shine kid. I was a shine kid, yeah. yeah. I sold newspapers on the corner. I... I uh, shine shoes in taverns. I set yeah. pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. How I had many? Eight, eight brothers and sisters. And you're the oldest? No, I'm third. Uh-huh. 
when I was shining shoes in all the bars, I would go to Pelosi's Tavern last because my mother was a bartender, and I'd stay there and wait for the shifts to change in the factory yeah. and then go back out again. While there, I would watch Frank Pelosi behind the bar right. tell jokes, tell stories, and have the audience, have his bar room right. just cracking up. Yeah. He could do dialects. Yeah. And I was fascinated that this guy, with his vocabulary and his vernacular and his inflection and timing, could cause this sound to come out of people's bodies. But this it, is your aunt's husband? It was my, yes, uh-huh. correct, yeah. It was my mom's sister's husband. husband right. Yeah. But he would, he, he, with his timing and his yeah, delivery, he right. could fill the air with yeah. this l- electricity of laughter right. and unite everybody. I, yeah. just, I just found it fascinating. And I began to tell jokes on the Catholic school, many that shouldn't be told on the Catholic yeah. school playground. M- listening to him, I would tell his jokes. Yeah. So I emulated him as a little boy. And I, and I was really fond of him, a yeah. great deal fond of him. He was a tough Sicilian yeah. took no guff from nobody, including the mafia. Dangerous guy. Dangerous in this respect, he, the mafia put a jukebox in his bar one day. Right. And he took it outside and dumped it on the sidewalk. He, it's in a book. But they, did they get beat up? No, because he conf- when they came to him, yeah. the guy's name was Tuffinelli. Yeah, Babe Tuffinelli came and, and and confronted him. I was in the bar. I had my little shoeshine box. I was in a bar, and uh, he he stood up to him and told him, "I haven't, you know, I, I bought my own jukebox." Yeah. And in those days, all the vending machines, anything, cigarette machines, anything that were in bars were put in there by the syndicate. Yeah, and you know, he, and we did, and he didn't pay the price, huh? He didn't have to. He they respected him. Or he, what? he stood right up to him. Yeah. In fact. So much so that Babe Tuffinelli, he said, you destroyed my jukebox. He said, I told your goons to get it out of here. He said, and they wouldn't get it out of here. So he took it out on a two-wheeler and dumped it on the sidewalk. My mother and my aunt dropped to their knees with the rosary at that time because yeah. they knew this was serious. Yeah. But when they came in to confront him, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was in there. And he said, I worked in a factory for, for you know, years to buy this place and to buy that jukebox. He had a jukebox in a corner, yeah. old Wurlitzer jukebox that cost like 100 bucks. And he said, and that's my jukebox. And, and uh, he said, to, the mob guy said to him, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go. But if you ever leave this business, I want you to come and work for me. He said, I'd never work for the likes of you because he hated mob. He yeah. hated mafia. And what family was that? Like what mafia? Who was the guy in charge Babe of Harvey? Tuffinelli. They were, he was, he was charge. He was in charge of that. He was a don of that area. Yeah. And further south was a, a guy named Laporte. Frank Laporte was Chicago Heights. You know? Uh-huh. But, you know, you grew up around all that, you know, except that I had such tremendous respect for this guy because he would throw teamsters out of his bar two at a time if you swore in the bar, if you, you know, were using foul language. And what kind of, so this town of Harvey, it was like a working class town, like mostly like, you oh, know. Uh, no doubt totally. about it. Steel mills, factories, Wyman Gordon, Perfection Gear, Alice Chalmer, um, uh, the Whiting Corporation, they were all steel mills so and factories. who was your dad? I mean, Walter like a, Dreesen. A Walter Dreesen, but this guy uh, you're, was my biological and, father. And you, and you found that out how? Because when I was growing up and I came to the age where I found out where babies came from, right. I l- realized I didn't want to think my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. You know? right. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, I confronted him one day. I came to him one day. And, to and a Frank? I really, Is yeah, that his Frank name? Yeah. I, I really, really loved him. He was my favorite uncle. Yeah. Day. But I took a long walk with him, and I said, I want to talk to you, you know. And I was 14, going on 15. Yeah. And I said that I, I th- he said, what is it you want to talk about? I said, I think that you're my, my dad. And he said, what makes you think, my father? And he said, what makes you think that? Yeah. And I told him, I said, because I don't look like my brothers and sisters, but I look just like your two sons. Hey. You know, and people always would call me wherever I go. People would say, hey, Pelosi, where are you going? Hey, Pelosi. And I'd say, my name isn't Pelosi, my name is Dreesen, you know. And uh, we walked for a little while, and, and he said, 
Well, he said, it's the truth. And he said, now you can go and you could tell the world and it would ruin your mom and dad's marriage. Yeah. He said, and it would ruin mine too. But that's all totally up to you because it is the truth. And I said, I don't want to ruin anybody's marriage. I just knew though. I just knew, you know, in my heart. And your dad didn't know? You're no, doing... and no, neither did my aunt and neither did anybody in the family but him and me. And you kept that secret. And I kept that for a long time. It was very difficult on me at that time. I, I all of a sudden did not want to be around him. Yeah. I avoided him. As much as I loved him, I avoided him after that. Because he, he, he thought he did something bad? or No, I, I just felt uncomfortable with right. the whole thing, the oh, whole right. sex thing. Now, you, you know. got to carry your, the secret, too. Yes, and I did for years. And uh, huh. but, but when I went into service, I went into service the day I turned 17. And when I came home on leave from boot camp... Which branch? I was in the Navy. Yeah. I served in the Marine Corps unit for nine months um, called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Where Force. were you? I was stationed at Quonset Point at that time. I was I went through boot camp at Great Lakes, yeah. and then out of out of boot camp went to Newport, Rhode Island, on assignment. And then I went from there to Quonset Point into a squadron called Nat Two Naval Air Torpedo. What unit. was going on at the time? No, it was just pre pre Vietnam. Oh, okay. You know, now that, that's what they trained us for yeah. at that time. The, right. They were training us. They, they, were, they were sending boats up rivers, and if the boat got shot out from underneath, the naval personnel had no ground training. So they wanted to give the naval personnel ground training, so they sent one guy from each squadron right. to the Marine Corps yeah. unit, and that's where I went, and oh. I trained with the Marine Corps. Anyhow, but I, I spent four years in the Navy. When I came home on leave from boot camp, I, I got together with them again, and we remained real close Frank. all of our lives. Yeah, Frank. Yeah. And, um, and uh, in the end, what no one knew. What changed? Well, I was a man then. I was yeah. becoming a man, and, and, and I didn't really care who planted the seed. It yeah. made no difference to me at that point who planted the seed. The other thing, too, was I didn't have a real close relationship with my, my father, Walt, Walt, well, my dad, Walter Dreesen, uh, nor did my brothers and sisters. He was an alcoholic and uh, and nice guy. Uh, Irish uh, guy? Uh, uh, no, uh, Dutch-German. Dutch-German. Your mom's Irish? My mom is full-blooded Irish, yeah. And my biological father is full-blooded Italian, you yeah. Which makes you a mean drunk is all that makes you yeah, being yeah, Irish yeah, and Italian. You know, you, that, were the, you a boozer? No, you know, I was at one you time. I, oh, I drank beer. I mean, I could drink beer. with. I, I only drank beer. My father was an alcoholic, Walter Dreesen, who, and all he did was drink beer. And I, I did in the Navy. I mean, I, you know, we, we hit port. Yeah. I, w- I was gone, you know. Right. And and even after I came out of the service, you know, I still hit, hit, work all week long, but I, I'd hit those bars. Yeah. And I love beer. I could drink beer day and night. But one day, sitting in a bar, after the comedy team split up, I was with uh, Tim Reed for six years. I'm sitting in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning. The team split up. I didn't want it to split up. It was like a broken marriage to me. I thought Tim and Tom could be the greatest comedy team show business had ever known. That was my goal. And... um Anyhow, when when Tim decided he wanted to uh, be more of an actor, and, yeah. and uh, it's another long story. But I'm sitting in this bar at two o'clock in the morning, where I used to check ID cards. I used to be like a, a bouncer when you were a kid. You no, know, when I came out of the service, oh. I checked ID cards. Yeah, and because uh, you know it was a, it was a rowdy bar. You know? Right. Anyhow, uh, so. I'm sitting there with my buddy. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting there trying to think of what I'm going to do that the comedy team split up. I could find another black guy. Tim was an African-American. We were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. We wrote a book that's now becoming a movie about our life, what it was like touring America from 1969 to 1975, and there were no comedy clubs in those days. We toured the nation and and worked all black clubs in the North and the South, the Chitlin Circuit, Mm -hmm. black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. 
And we worked the Playboy circuit and all that stuff and, and nightclubs. But now the team splits up. And I'm sitting there in a the bar at 2 o'clock one with two beers in front of me and two shot glasses, meaning I had two other beers coming in front of me. Right. You know, anyhow, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I was always good at alternatives. And I said, I can, I can either find another black guy and do the same act or I can uh, go it alone, become a stand-up alone. I had never been on stage by myself before. Or I could quit and get a job in a factory like my wife wanted me to do and end this dream that I had of being a comedian. It would have pleased her to no end. And I'm sitting at the bar and I'm thinking, I could go it alone. I could be a stand-up alone. I think I could do that. That's what I want to do. And I start thinking, well, then what were your goals? To get to The Tonight Show, to get to Johnny Carson. Because in those days, one appearance on The Tonight Show, yeah, your whole life everything. changed. Sure. One appearance, Freddie yeah. Prince got a sitcom the next right. day. And so I'm sitting in a bar and I said, that's what I'll do. I'll go it alone. And I remembered a book I read by Clement Stone called Positive Mental Attitude, PMA. Yeah. And in it, he said, if, if you know what you want to do and it's a noble endeavor, then search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and get it out of your life. Yeah. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to make it as a stand-up <laughs> comedian? And I looked at this booze and I said, booze, drinking, because <laughs> yeah, I love to drink. Yeah. And I pushed the two beers across the bar and yeah. my buddy, Jimmy Lepore was his name. Jimmy came up to me and he said, you quit, Tommy? I said, I'm through. He said, you quit for the night? I said, no, I quit. He said, for the night? I said, I quit forever. He said, yeah, right. Uh-huh. And I never touched a drop for like seven years after that till I, till I was on The Tonight Show doing all the talk shows in my career. I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. all around the country. And I, I went out one night and had a couple of beers and it just wasn't the same, you know. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that way, so you didn't start again. No, I, I did again when I was touring with Frank Sinatra. I mean, you know, he stayed out till dawn oh, every night. Yeah, so, sure. you know, so then I'd have a few beers. And he used to say to me, have a real drink. What are you drinking that, you know, that beer stuff? But I, I, I never became, now I haven't had a drink maybe in four or five years. I could sit down and have a beer with you right now, but it wouldn't mean but anything. It, well, it, it didn't sound, it doesn't sound like, you, you know, you, I guess you were fortunate in that, uh, you know, your father was not your biological father because you didn't have the genetic predisposition. If well, you had Frank Polizzi gen- drank a lot too. <laughs> that, that whole family, the Irish and the Italian, they drank a lot too. So what did, what did Dreesen do? What did the old man do? Was he, a, he work, where did he work? Well, when I was growing up, he worked at in steel mills as what they call a time study man, a methods engineer, you know. Uh-huh. And then one day he just, the alcohol just, uh, he just never worked again. He oh, just, really? Yeah, so he just kept it, drinking and- It beat him. Yeah, it, yeah he, was a, he was a sweet old guy, but he never took me to a baseball game. He never threw a ball at me. He never, uh, we never went fishing, you know, those kind of things that father, sons do. I never, but, but I didn't feel bad about that because he didn't do that with the other brothers and sisters either. So you guys all had to kind of bring up yourself. Maybe your mom was. Yeah. Mom was, mom was real good for a long time. And then at one time she threw the towel in and drank with him for years. Uh. And then, then it really got, you know, it really got bad. But then, you know, in the end she quit drinking and, and, um, and, and look, did your siblings take care of each other? I mean, were you close with with the gang? When, whenever you have parents who are alcoholics, the siblings really bond. And you're the middle kid. I'm, I'm third, yeah. They bond. And, and to this day, we're very, very close. Are they all still around? Yeah, they're still. Uh, my, my sister Darlene passed away mm. from multiple sclerosis uh. Uh, and complications thereof. Uh, but and every year I would run a marathon for her, call it 26 miles for Darlene. Right. And people would pledge money for every mile I run. And uh, and I would bring in celebrities in the Chicago twenty five celebrities that run a block with me two blocks. Yeah, uh, Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all twenty six miles with me. Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah. But- so so okay. So you're in this situation. You you're, you're shining shoes. You're you're doing all these odd jobs. You go in the service. You come back. So Chicago at that time. What are we talking? The sixties. Yeah. 
And and you know what what makes you decide to 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 get into show business? I, I was never ever dreamed, never thought it was the furthest thing from my mind. Right. I wandered aimlessly all after I came out of service. I worked construction. I I wheel concrete. I I pour sidewalks. Were in, you a union guy? In construction, I wasn't. But when I went to I went to work at a trucking firm called Jones Motor. Uh huh. And Jones Motor uh, was a, a trucking firm, and they're all Teamsters. You yeah. Know? And. You, it was mandatory. If you if you survived the first thirty days, you had to become a teamster. You had to join the <laughs> if union. You survived, so, <laughs> yeah. The first thirty days on a loading dock with all these tough Irish, Italian, Polish guys from yeah. Cicero, Illinois, uh-huh. and and after after about six months yeah. of loading trucks and being right. a teamster, the the company came to me and said they wanted me to be in management. They wanted me to drop my teamster card and become management, become a foreman. After you'd become a teamster? Yeah. yeah. Is there a test you have to take or you just, no. what, how's yeah, it? Yeah, test you have to take. You just have to have to put up with all the <laughs> BS that goes with, and, and, uh, No uh, test, huh? No test, just, just <laughs> do a lot of hard work. Right. But, uh, I, so I became a foreman, a uh-huh. dock foreman at Jones Motor, and now the 48 guys that I used to work with as teamsters, I was now their foreman. But you're not in management then, though, or um, you... I was in management, yeah. The, I, I became management in, for right. Jones Motor Company. Yeah. But these, it's interesting because now, you know, half the guys, 24 of the guys said, hey, Tommy, that's great. You're a nice kid, and, you know, they were, they were all tough old guys, and that's great that you're foreman yeah. and, and wish you the best. And the other 24 said, you no good, low-life scumbag. I'll never, I'll never, I wouldn't, <laughs> I am, you know, you're... I'll never work for you. And so, Why, because you were the other side now? Yeah, because I was on the other side now. And the Teamsters, you know, they were, in those days, they were all mobbed up. Yeah. You know, um, so you uh, saw the mob guys around all oh, the time. Oh, they were, they, you know, they were called BAs, business, uh, you know, associates. Yeah. They would come, if you, if like, one time a guy turned me in, a, a guy, he would come to work every week with a novel. He'd finish the novel by the end of the week, you yeah. know, into the bathroom. I used to have to chase him out of the john all the time to get him to work. He once called a hall and told them that I was harassing them, him. So they come, what they do, they wait till all the men are waiting, waiting outside the, the factory on their uh, lunch break. The mob guys? Mob guys. And they would slam on, come in a big black Buick and slam on the brakes and a car would turn sideways yeah. and they'd open up all the doors and all four would get out and they'd say, you know, where's this punk Dreesen? Yeah. Where's this punk at? Uh, he's in the dock shack and they'd come up and they'd, they'd try to give me, you know, but I'm a, I'm a street guy. I don't have a degree from academia, but I yeah. got a doctorate from the streets. I right. grew up on the streets. Right. So I knew what the game was, and they're arguing back and forth, and you're harassing our guy. I said, you're talking about that 248 guy, 48-pound guy, that I'm harassing him? I weigh 145 pounds. I'd be embarrassed if I was him saying I'm harassing <laughs> Anyhow, they'd raise hell and all that. Then they'd go up to the terminal manager, and he'd give them an envelope loaded with cash yeah. and say, gentlemen, thanks for stopping by, and make sure you have lunch on us or dinner on us. Anyway. And, and they'd go outside, and they'd tell all the guys, well, we told that punk off. He, we straightened him out. Yeah, right. And I, I wasn't always fond of being a boss. In, in, the, in the military, you know, you, when you get rank you had people working what was your rank i was a third class petty officer Uh but my point is i i i never liked being harassed and yelled at and screamed at like in boot camp and all the other things and i never was fond of doing that to anybody else one thing stand-up comedy offered me uh, i'm my own boss we write it we produce it we direct it and we do it i mean you might be shitty club owners you might get you know you, you might get shorted or stiffed or whatever but you're still making your own choices all the time yeah and the, the freedom of being a stand-up That's comedian best, yeah. oh, it's, it's just it's just but what got me in the show business was yeah. I, I did all these odd jobs wandering aimlessly right you know, I, I was a photographer i was a private detective i oh, was you a, were a private detective yeah for Pelosi detective agency don frank Pelosi's son don had been a police officer for years 
my cousin, but actually my half brother. And uh, he he yeah. opened up a detective agency after he left the police department, and I was a private detective. He hired street kids. He was very smart. And instead of hiring former police officers, and he did that too, uh-huh. uh, and current police officers because they're looking for side money. But he would also hire street kids because we could get information from pool rooms and places like that that were you know we and we got information uh, illegally. So you were a you kid know. still. No. I was in I was in my twenties. Yeah. So, like, what kind of cases did you? What kind of stuff most were? of it really was domestic that you hated yeah. husband and wife tailing. Yeah. You know, right. mostly domestic cases. But we handled a murder kidnap case at one time. Yeah. Uh, a doctor whose daughter was murdered and, and was kidnapped and found out later was murdered. And we we were getting better information than the police department because we were going to the sources. You did know. you solve it? No, uh, they they later on never did solve it because they pulled us off of it. The police department got very angry and told the the doctor to pull us off the case because we were. I had I had some guys that were with me that we would go. <laughs> we, there was a bartender in Gary, Indiana. That supposedly had some information that we needed, and one of my buddies, you know, you know, pulled them over the bar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> did, right. They did some things that you Ruffed shouldn't do. Yeah, but but we got information, you know. Uh, but anyhow, wow. amidst all of this, I'm, I'm doing all these odd jobs, and yeah. I joined a civic group called the JCs, Junior Chamber of Commerce was called in those days. It's young men of action, 18 to 36, and they taught you leadership training. You learned, learned how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct yeah. meetings, and how to speak in front of was, an audience. It's business-oriented, basically? It's, it, it, well, it's leadership, it's, it's young, leadership training for young men in the community. Okay. Today, they have young men and women, uh, but it's not as prevalent as it used to be, the JCs. But it was a real strong civic organization that my brother got me into, and, and I, I really got involved into it. Yeah. And while I was there, they, they handled the problems of the community. If there was any problems in the community, the JCs went out and they tried, they handled the problem and, and made the community more aware of what the problem was and tried to solve the problem. And in doing so, you got this leadership Sort of training. like, almost like uh, community organizers? Exactly. But and, and what happened was one of the biggest problems in those days yeah. was drugs, as it is today, our youth and drugs. So I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. What it's was a the big drug then? Heroin? Well, you know, obviously marijuana was a big thing. Surprisingly enough, a lot of things like quaaludes and and uh, was it the late sixties, yeah, late sixties, yeah. Uh-huh. And and um, and you were out of the service. You got out before oh, Vietnam. Oh, oh yeah, I got out. In fact, I tried, well, that's another story. I tried to go back in. I was going to go back in as, in the Marine Corps, but I I didn't want to go through the boot camp yeah. because I had been trained by the Marines for nine months. And the Marine Corps recruiter talked me out of it. He said, "Tommy, you don't really want to go." He, he first he found out. He said, "You'd have to go to Pendleton. You'd have to go through boot camp." But I didn't want to do that again. He said, "Tommy, you don't want to." I had a wife and two kids. This we was were, after the war started. We you were, were going to go. Yeah, I was going to go back because you felt like it was your duty. Well, yeah, yeah, and and I was wandering aimlessly. I didn't know what it was I wanted uh, to do in life, and boy, and I had a lot of buddies. Dodged a bullet, over there. literally. I really did. Yeah, twenty one. There's twenty guys on the Vietnam Wall from my high school. Oh my Twenty God. from Harvey, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I knew those kids, and and and, and I had buddies on that wall too that do, stayed in the service. Do, after do, I got do you have uh, do you have any sort of like uh, survivor's guilt? No, but I oftentimes wonder how I would have reacted to all of that in combat. You know, you're trained for combat, and, 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 and uh, even out at sea, you're, you're constantly trained for combat. Yeah. We were launching aircraft, and, and air, we had plane crashes, uh-huh. and we had, uh, even though it's peacetime at the time, you're training for combat. You're training for war. So you had, you know, you, you witnessed as a young kid, uh, people killed, yeah. uh, you know, plane crashes, explosions, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So uh, the only thing I, I, I oftentimes would wonder 
how I might have reacted when Under. the shit hit the fan. Oh, yeah. You know, and because you can talk all the BS you want to talk sure. about, but nobody knows until that, that incident happens. Yeah. But going back to how I got in the show the business, yeah. I wrote this drug education program yeah. to teach grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept mm -hmm. I had. When I was proposing to the JCs at the general membership what I wanted to do, I did it at a general meeting. Mm -hmm. the, after the meeting was over with, a, a young black man came up to me with his sponsor, this young black man named Tim Reed, and he said, I want to help you with that project. I'm a new JC. Tonight's my first night. I said, gee, thank you, but I already have a guy. A yeah. guy named John DeBoer was my buddy. Now, let me digress a little bit more. At that time, I was literally praying to God saying, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? This can't be what I'm supposed to be doing. I'd be in bars late at night with my buddies, and I'm, I was married, too. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, God, I'm, I'm, every job I did never fulfilled me. I never felt fulfilled. When, when did you get married? Like, I got married when I, right when I first came out of the service. You know, I had a wife and three kids the day I went in the show business. But my point was, is that, that I kept praying, saying, God, there must be something I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, right. Now, this drug education program, when I, when I tell Tim Reed, I said, gee, I'm sorry, but I got a guy. The yeah. next day, this guy, John DeBoer, calls me and says, I can't do it, Tom. And I said, oh, he said, I got a new job. Yeah. And I said, oh, gee, what was that black guy's name? Yeah. Now, John DeBoer was a white guy. I said, what was that black guy? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. Yeah. I get together with Tim. We work on the project. We go into schools. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. Wherever JCs were, it became a model program on how to teach drug education at a grade school level. What was the angle? <clears throat> at an elementary school what level. What made it so successful? We, we, we got the kids laughing. We went yeah. in the classroom. Yeah. Now, the moment I walked in that classroom with Tim Reed, I went, oh, my God, what a, what a divine intervention this is. Because <laughs> right. the students were black and white. Yeah. And if I, two white guys would have went in there, that's one thing. But a black guy and a white guy, we got their attention immediately. Yeah. And we played off of one another. We played records for the kids, you know, and we'd play records and get them, you know, oh, the games people play now every night and every day now by Joe South. This yeah. Record called Games People Play. And we'd say to the kids, how many here have heard that record, Nate? Raise your hand. I said, yeah. well, that's what we came today to talk about some games people are playing here in Harvey. And Tim and I would joke off of one another. The program became very successful through the publications of the JCs. One day, an eighth grade girl, after about eight months, an eighth grade girl was leaving the classroom because we only taught eighth graders. She was leaving the classroom. She looked at Tim and I and she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. Yeah. And she walked away. An eighth grade girl, her name was Vicki Sarefka. Uh, when we wrote our book, she actually came to one of our book signings. You remember now, her name? Oh yeah, because I knew her uncle when she, when she told me her name was yeah. a rough guy. I said, "Oh, it's Benny and really? Oh, it's my uncle." Yeah. So I remember. Anyhow, a couple of days later, Tim and I were sitting around working on our next program. Yeah. And he's he told me a joke, and I told him a joke, and he said, "You thinking about what that little girl said?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Would you do that?" I said, I'd do that, but I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do. We started <laughs> writing what we thought was material. Uh huh. This is back in 1969. And and this I, uh, that, you know culturally that's a, a a pretty dicey time. Oh, you don't you have no idea. You you never saw a black I mean, guy and a white guy walking down. And then the, and then sixty eight, you had the the protests in oh, Chicago. Yeah, in Chicago, the big the the, the riots in Chicago and, and all that. And you never saw a black and a white guy walking down the street. You, you, you didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone on on a stage together. It was a difficult time. The Vietnam War was raging. Yeah. Students were protesting all over America. African Americans were rioting in every major city, including Harvey, Illinois. One of the largest riots in the country was in my neighborhood in Harvey. Huh. You know, um, so so in amidst all of this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. You, okay, so you, he says you're thinking about what that kid said, and you said, I don't know what to do. So what did you do? We started writing what we thought was material. We sat down each night writing. Now, my wife... 
at that time uh, did not want me, I'm divorced now, but she did not want me in show business at all. She thought it was the dumbest idea that I ever could possibly. You got three kids. Yeah, I got three kids, get a real job. And I don't blame her, by the way. Her father worked in a factory 38 years, never missed a day, never missed a day of work. Brought a check home every Friday. Right. That's what she, how she was raised. Yeah. And and this this precarious business, a show business, right. and she was right. I mean, we we made no money. We struggled. Tim was working for EI Dupont as a marketing rep, and he was trying to do both at the same time. But unhappy I mean, though, he was unhappy too. Well, he wasn't unhappy, but I think it was. Uh, this is um, I'm speaking for him. It it didn't fulfill him either. Yeah. Like it did. Right. It, right. His wife every night was very supportive. Every night we'd be at his house trying to write material, and finally we'd keep running in the other room. As you know how comedians are. Do you think this is funny? Do you think that's funny? If he says with the this, wife, with the wife. Yeah. One day she said, "Tommy, she's a sweet, dear friend of mine to this day." She said, "Tommy, you can't come here anymore." I said, why? She said, you have to go do this someplace. You're driving me crazy with this. Every five minutes, is this funny? We went. There were no comedy clubs in those days. We found a little jazz club. and Which the, one? It was called the Party Mart Supper Club on the south side of Chicago. And we said to the guy, could we get up after the band? He said, you're a comedy team? I said, well, that's interesting. Yeah. We went up that night, terrified. Yeah. In the, no, as you know, no dressing rooms. Right. And these are, we were in the kitchen. They're slopping food around. Both of us thought yeah. we were going to gag. <laughs> and now the guy said, comes in, how do you want me to introduce you? You know, so Dreesen and Reed, he said, Dressen and, 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 and Rude. They were funny. We said, well, just say Tim and Tom because it was Tim Reed and Tom yeah. Dreesen. He went out and introduced us. We got up on the stage and we went 100 miles an hour. All we wanted to do was remember our material. Right. Hi, we're the comedy team at Tim Tom. He's Tim and I'm Tom. And we just kept going 100 miles an hour. And finally, some guy in the back said, slow down. And I said, oh, sir, please don't heckle us. This is our first time. <laughs> so now, now we rush off the stage and we get the owner in the, the corner. I told you to slow down. <laughs> we, get, we, we, get in, yeah, we get in the owner in the corner. We said, how do we do? How do we do? What do you think? What do you think? He said, I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance to laugh. Come back tomorrow and start all over and slow down. We went back the next night and we got some laughs. <laughs> now, what was the what was the, the angle of the bits? Because you, you're black and white, so you have that gimmick. But you, so there's no standard sort of set, you know, straight man. And, and it, was there a straight man? No, you, you know, that was the thing about our act. It, he would be straight sometimes and I'd be straight. Right. We did, we did comedy routines. We did, we did monologues. You know, we started writing what we thought was funny stuff. And, and we, we, we had a routine where he taught me how to be black. Uh-huh. The irony of that is, is I grew up in a black neighborhood. I had eight, like I say, we had eight kids lived in a shack. So I, I grew up around black people. Yeah. I, I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. Yeah. I played football on an all-black football team. I was a very, you know, very athletic as a kid, even though I was light in the in the rear end. Yeah. But so I grew up around the brothers, and to this day, my nickname was White Boy. Yeah. Then you know, I did an album in front of an all black audience called "That White Boy Is Crazy." Yeah. I'm the only white comedian ever to do an album in front of an all black audience. You did? Yeah. What year was that? In 1980, I think it was 81 or 82. It was called. It's uh, called "That White Boy Is Crazy." And Richard Pryor tried to get me. He said, "Tommy, you should call it that honky's crazy," because mm-hmm. you know he had. An album. That, yeah, that, that, yeah, that N word's crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he said, I'm used to call that honky's crazy. I said, You know what, Richard? No brother ever called me a honky in my whole life. They always call me white boy. Yeah. They, 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 if we'd be, if I go back right now to the neighborhood and they're sitting around talking, one of them would say, No, I scored two touchdowns in that game. Oh, you didn't. I did. That white boy was, Hey, white boy, come here. Tell yeah, him. Yeah. You know, and so I, I used to joke, I was 12 years old when I found out my name wasn't White Boy, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but so Tim, we do a routine where he taught me how to be black. And, yeah. And then we did another routine where I introduced him to my Italian father. And then, uh, but so, but a lot of routines we did were not about race at all. Mm. 
What it was about was here was two guys who really liked one another, were friends with one another, and and it just so happened one of them was black and one of them was white. What I got out of the six years that we were with, and to my dying day, I will always treasure this more than anything that we've ever accomplished. I've ever accomplished right. in show business or Tim. Yeah, is that I can't tell you the times, Mark, where after we would do a show, where a black guy would come up to us or a white guy, and they'd say, you know, the black guy'd say, you know, I got a white friend. And uh, I'd like to reach out to him, but if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out, man. Yeah. But after watching you and Tim today, I'm going to reach out for my friend. And a white guy would say the same thing. You know, I got a black friend, and I really like the guy, but you know, the white guys are going to give me hell if I, if I, you know, pal with them and stuff. He said, but after watching you and Tim, you know, I'm going to reach out. That happened to us more than you'll ever know. And you were at black clubs and white clubs. He said you did the Chitlin Circuit. Yeah, the Chitlin Circuit was black-owned, black-operated. And how was that for you? The 20 grand in Detroit when Motown was there. Motown was in Detroit in those days. The 20 Grand was a club owned by a gangster named B, BK, B, K. Bush, Bill K. Bush. You know, we, we worked there. Yeah. The, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear in Chicago, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Hardeman in Atlantic City before they had gambling. Yeah. It was a great experience. I'd be the only white guy within miles. But also, we worked all white clubs, like the Playboy circuits and stuff like that, where there'd only be all white folks. And, and uh, uh, Tim, you know, be the only black guy in that area. The interesting thing about racism in those days, if if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, yeah, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. Yeah. See, Tim would be an Uncle Tom. Right. And then if there was a white guy who hated black people with a passion, he's not mad at Tim. He's mad at me. I'm the N-word lover. Yeah. And they didn't mind calling me that. Yeah. They didn't mind two or three of them got me down in a, in a bathroom down in Atlanta, Georgia, wanted to do a number on me. The fourth time on what stage- What happened? Well, I mean, um, you know, I'm-, I'm I boxed when I was in the service. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I got an Irish Italian temper. Yeah. Uh, so you, but that night, I have to tell you, Mark, that <laughs> night I didn't, the, the three guys came in, in yeah. John, and I'm taking a leak. I'm at the urinal. And they start saying, oh, there's that, you know, yeah. N word loving some bitch. And, and are you, uh, I bet you, you know, giving him oral sex. And I mean, yeah. I, I would like to give you the exact You vernacular. can. It's a, it's, I can. Yeah. Well, this is what they said, and and and, I, and I, uh, are you sucking his dick? I bet you are. Yeah. I bet you sucking it. And I turned around. I'm peeing at the time. Yeah. And I looked at the three of them. <laughs> Two of them were punks. Yeah. Two of them. If I smacked one, the other one would start crying. And I knew that if I if I waylaid this punk, <laughs> yeah. the other one would drop to his knees and say, "Don't hit." But the third guy was dangerous. Yeah. When I was a bartender, I was able to do. I could look in a guy's eye and say, "This guy's full of it. He's yeah. there's nothing." Sure. But. The third guy I knew was going to hurt somebody. Yeah. And I knew that there, uh, there was no way I was going to get out of here. Not only that, Tim's outside. Yeah. While I was taking a leak, I just kept biting my lip. I bit my, li- I bit my lip till it bled because I knew that I was going to say something crazy or something stupid. Yeah. And I was going to get myself hurt and, and, and Tim too. So I, I, I finished and I walked out and I said, have a good day, guys. And I walked out the door. But... I didn't sleep for almost two nights after that. I, I was scheming all sorts of things in my brain. Furious. How I wanted to, oh, I wanted to, I, I would, would have loved to have killed those guys. Yeah. So you worked with him from 68 to 69 to 75. Se- 69 to 75. Se- so all through. Early, early 75. Yeah. The, the, the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And, and, and through all that craziness, you guys were just plowing along. Yeah. And, and, and again. Crossing the racial divide. Totally. I mean, we, 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 we did 11 prisons in one year. We did colleges, co- high schools where they had racial tension. And oftentimes we didn't get paid for that. And especially in the prisons, we didn't get paid. But Doing it as a service. Yeah, well, it, it, just because right I think laughter should go where laughter is needed. And did you find that when you did prisons or, or, or high schools where there was tension that, 
that you felt at ease a bit, at least in, in, while you were on stage, or did you get feedback? That was the kind of feedback we got. We constantly got that feedback that you, you know, and to this day, to this day, Mark, on my Facebook or something like that, or I'll be appearing somewhere in America, somebody will come backstage and say hello and say, look, you don't remember me, but I was at such and such a school and you did this and, and you know, we needed it at that time. The drug education program, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up and say, I never did drugs, Tom, because you and Tim came to our school and it just woke me up. I was really? only in eighth grade, yeah, and, I, and, and it woke me up and I never, uh, you know, thank you very much. And these um, are people in their 40s now, probably. Oh, 40s, let me see. Yeah, 40, maybe even in early 50s, you know. And it uh, still happens, huh? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, 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 again, I love stand-up comedy. I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian first, last, and always. I'm nothing else. I'm no nothing more than a stand-up comedian. That's what I love. But... If but you, you were living in Chicago yes. the whole time with Tim, and, yeah. and, and when you guys broke up, he decided, what, he's going to go to Hollywood? He came. He went to live with Della Reese. He, he left his marriage, and, uh, and he went to live <laughs> yeah. with Della Reese and lived up in Bel Air with her, and he was, you know, he was riding high. I'll tell you something interesting. I came out here. I was, I was devastated. I was broken. broken. I just, the comedy team was my whole life. I started doing stand-up alone. And you make and, a good living with the team? We barely made, uh, we made enough just to survive. So your wife's furious the whole oh, time. Oh, she, she wanted me out of the business. So when, when I came out here to California, she thought I was only going to be out here a week and I was going to be back home. So I came out here thinking I'll get on at the comedy store in a day or How'd two. How'd you know about it? It, it took me, th well, everybody in those days, everybody was talking. First of all, when Johnny Carson left New York from 19, in 1972, Johnny Carson came to the West Coast. At that time, again, 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson? So you, you might want to be a comedian. You might going to be a comedian. But if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't there yet. Yeah. And, and how do you do? You got to come out here. in the comedy store, the, you know, we started hearing about the comedy store, that it was the greatest place to launch, that it's on Sunset Boulevard and so forth and so on. So I came out here thinking that I... Could, and I visited the comedy store when I was working the L.A. Playboy Club in 74. I went over to the comedy store and saw, you know, these comedians getting up and getting a chance to break yeah. in new material and all that stuff. But anyhow, uh, you know, when, when I came out here, I, I thought that I could get on right away. I didn't know. It took me 30 days to get on. I went there every night on a, on, 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 and trying to get on. What was the situation there then? Well, you sign up on a Monday night. You oh, so it was potluck. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, for the open mic. And finally, after about a month, meanwhile, in that interim, I was house sitting. I had never heard the word house sitting in my life. In Chicago, if you're yeah. sitting on a house, you're a burglar. You know, yeah. You're a second story guy. You know? yeah. This girl singer that I had helped one time asked me to sit on her house, house sit while she was on the road. And I got to stay at her house for a while, and I'd hitchhike every night to the comedy store, and I couldn't get on. You know? And finally, I got on one night. And I, I always say this, that The Tonight Show, your first appearance on The Tonight Show, in those days, 26 million people saw the show. Right. The pressure was enormous. Mm. And I'm usually a calm comedian. Again, I'm a motivational speaker, so I use those procedures on my mind yeah. when I'm perform before I perform. But that night, the night of Mitzi, <laughs> this is the night that was even more pressure than the Tonight Show yeah. because of this reason. There was no improvisation out here at that time. The comedy store was, was the only game in town yeah. where people came. So if Mitzi said no, you might as well go back to Harvey, Illinois, or yeah. Boston, or wherever you're from, because it's over. And and so that five minutes that I did for Mitzi that night, the pressure was enormous. And luckily, I scored. And in the, when I came off stage, Mitzi said, yeah. "Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I always say whenever we talk about two people, yeah. comedians, 
Jay Leno or Mitzi, we always have to do their voice. Mitzi said, well, it seems you've got stage presence and you've obviously done this before, so we can find some room for you. And then I said, see, I started a little comedy club in Chicago called Lay Pub and, and I MC. And I said, by the way, if you ever need an MC, I have MC'd a lot and I would gladly do that too, knowing that would give me more stage yeah. time, you know. And she said, well, that's a thought. And sure enough, she, first of all, I, I, I go on, when you first get your times, you get Tuesday at one o'clock in the morning. And, right. And then you work your way to finally the weekdays where you're finally on prime time on yeah. weekdays. But now you want to work weekends. Now you're at one o'clock in the morning on weekends. And I work my way through the system. But this is like, but you were, you were supposed to be here like a, just for a little while and you, and then you end up staying, you were house sitting and it started to happen for you. So you're calling your wife, you're saying, I'm she not She wrote me home. a dear John. She wrote me a dear John to that address and said, this is your dream, not mine. I've had it. You know, uh, you, you go and you pursue whatever you want. I want no part of it. And that was it, that? that? Pardon me? That was that? That would, No, that wasn't the end of it. I ended up getting a couple gigs out here. Carl Reiner saw me at the, uh, at the comedy store one night. And, and, and his wife, Estelle, really yeah. liked me. And so he gave me a part in a film. He, she, she told him, help this boy, you know. So he gave me a part in a film. And then from there, and people were coming what down. What film? Uh, it was called Good Heavens. He was an angel that came down and granted wishes. Uh-huh. And I had to do a scene with a, a, a new actor on All in the Family called Rob Reiner. Yeah. And his, his <laughs> wife, who by that time didn't have a show, Penny Marshall. Uh-huh. So I did a scene with them, you know. And, uh, and I got 500 bucks for it. And I asked them, could I have the money up front? Could I get, get the money right away? And what I did when I went back to Chicago, I yeah. talked my wife into coming back with me to California and, and the kids. Oh, you did? Because I miss my kids sure. something awful. And, sure. and, and to this day, we're the, as close as can be. So anyhow, long story short, she came out to the West Coast with me. And, and, and uh, after a while, I, I did my first tonight. So all these things, and now I'm on my way. And uh, we, you know, we got a home and, and the, the pool and the dog and the whole nine yards. So it worked and, uh, out, huh? Yeah, I'm doing real good. But then after about 26 years, our 25th anniversary, we went back to Illinois because yeah. we got married in the shotgun, you know, yeah. the shotgun. We got married and, and she never walked down the aisle with her dad. Right. We went back after 25 years and, and went to Ascension Church where I had been an altar boy. And eight months later, we got a divorce. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Cost me like 50 grand for all this stuff in those days. What the hell days. happened? It just, she she just didn't want to be in this in this atmosphere it she, took a long time for her to realize yeah that. i mean we we just and i don't blame her she was a little girl from harvey illinois and she just it just wasn't her life it was, she kept saying this is your life i'll tell you a real eye opening thing that she's really, still around no, she passed away oh, a sorry. few years ago yeah, yeah. Uh, she went to live in in arizona and, and and lived with a guy for about 12 years and but uh i have three wonderful children and four grandchildren i i don't regret you know, I, I, if I die tomorrow, the world doesn't yeah. owe me a thing. I, I, you know. But what was eye-opening to me was when I started touring with Frank Sinatra as his opening act, they'd invite me to the home, their compound down in Rancho Mirage, and they'd say, bring your wife. And she'd say, oh, no, that's your... And finally, I convinced her. She finally agreed to go. And we're driving down there. We're halfway there. And she said, now, will we be in a bedroom uh, like down the hall from them? I said, no, no, they have a compound, right. and they live in a mass house. We live in a, we'll stay in a bungalow. Frank had bungalows all along the outer perimeter right. of his compound called New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way. And that's where all of his house guests stayed. And so she said, I said, we'll be staying in the bungalow like the other house guests. And she said, other house guests? What, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's going to be other people there. She said, like who? And I said, well, Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, Kirk Douglas and his wife, Anne, uh, Jack Lemon, his wife, Felicia. I said, Angie Dickinson, um, 
uh, at Clint Eastwood and, yeah. and who he was dating at the time. And, and I'm naming Robert Wagner, Jill St. John. She started gagging. She said, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. I pulled off the, she said, she got out of the car. She was walking, she was gagging. I got, I said, what's wrong? She said, I'm not going, I'm not going. I don't belong there. I don't belong there. She was so uneasy, you know, uh, and it took me an hour. Had an anxiety attack. To calm her down. Yeah. I drove down there with her yeah. and sure enough, she, she had a great time. But but that, it's hard. It's a lot of pressure. These yeah, are celebrities. Yeah, know? and well, she also. I mean, that what she grew up in Harvey, yeah. a, a blue collar town, and I and I understood that, and and she just kept saying, "This is your world, not mine." You know. Well, from like uh, going back a little bit, so you you walk into the comedy store. I got to tell you, <laughs> Mark, the the, the uh, there's been so many misconceptions about. Our relationship. I loved Mitzi. Yeah. I, I mean, Mitzi gave me that shot. She gave me that shot. Are you kidding me? We had a great relationship. When it came time for the strike, I was the last person. I didn't want to be involved in that at all. I was making. I'm, I'm making three hundred thousand. I'm touring all over the country. I'm touring with Sammy Davis Jr. How many times have you done the Tonight Show by that point? Oh God, how many times did she? That was seventy. Now I probably done twenty or so. Really? I did so, eight in one year. Well, I mean, so how does that? Let's before we get to the strike, how does that unfold? So you're here. You're. You're. You, did she ever make you MC, or she didn't follow through with? No, that? yeah, I, I would MC sometimes. Yeah. you know. And then finally, I started doing my own. You know, and and finally, I worked my way into the system, and I, I became like one of the stars of the comedy. And who store. was there? David Letterman, Robin Williams, uh, Gallagher, uh, Michael Keaton. Um, these are all unknowns, you know, at the time. The first Tonight Show, though, wait, that must have been amazing. I mean, what, how'd that come on about? I, I, I hustled and hustled and hustled Craig Tennis. Craig Tennis is, was the head talent coordinator at the Tonight Show. Yeah. They came to the comedy store. They came looking for new comedians. I pestered him and pestered him to come and see me. And finally, one day, he said, okay, I'm coming to see you. He was looking at three people that night. Um, Bauman Esten, Dave, Bruce Baby Baum. Yeah. Bauman Esten was a comedy team. Larry Esten later wrote for Cheers, and, and, and Bruce Baum was still doing stuff. Sure. Down. And the other was a new kid named Billy Crystal. Right. And me. And uh, I pull up in front of the comedy store on a Tuesday night, and I'm, you know, we're all thinking, oh my God, Tuesday night, I hope there's a crowd. Right. Because, you know, it's better to work in front of 150 people than to work in front of 10 people. Sure. If you're auditioning for yeah. the Tonight Show. I pull up in front of the comedy show and the place is mobbed out in front. Huh. I look and I said, oh my God. And big stars are out there, Carl Reiner being one of them. And, and, and all these stars and Rollins and Jaffe were top-notch management yeah. firm. And what it was was Billy was auditioning and they kept the crowd outside. They had all the, they had talent coordinators from all the shows. They had casting people and everything, but they weren't going to let them in. Well, I was honored when Mom and Esten ran because that's what management does. It, they didn't bring all those people there to showcase me. Yeah. They showcased their client, Billy sure. Crystal. So I had to go on in front of about 22 people. Right. While uh, 100 and something were out in front. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, anyhow, so, and I got over. And Craig Tennis said to me afterward, he came outside. He said, okay, I want you to come to my office Tuesday. I, I like what I saw, but come to my office Tuesday. I went to his, the, the following uh, Tuesday. Uh, I went to his office, and he, in his office, he said, okay, I saw you do like 20 minutes. Show me the five you would do if I gave you the Tonight Show. Yeah. So I, I did like five minutes in front of him. i do this bit, that bit. He said, okay, take that out. Take that out, and I'll try it again. Or give me something else. And I finally did. He said, okay, you got the show. You're on a week from today. Now, f for the whole week, you don't eat, you know. Yeah. But you're going and doing that bit every night at, at the comedy store. And and then I got there and they put me in makeup and they take you down to the green room and yeah. they ran out of time. They bumped me. Uh -huh. Come back in another week. I came back another week. Same thing. They ran out of time. Come back another week. Three times in a row I got bumped. 
And the fourth time, I'm there in makeup, and Fred DeCordova came in the makeup room, and he said, I got some bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and the pressure starts to build. Normally, when, you, when, you, when, you're like, when I became a veteran of the Tonight Show, I'd, when I'd go back to stagehands, hey, Dreesen, how's your Cubs? Hey, and you know, everybody's real friendly sure. with you because you're a veteran now. But that first time, when you're walking that long walk from that green room all the way around to the back of that curtain, all the stagehands, they turn their back on you. It's his first time. They're whispering. It's yeah, his yeah. first time. It's yeah. his first time. You know. Now you get behind that curtain and the Craig Tennis said, you okay? I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. He walks away. Now you're thinking... I can't remember the first joke. What was my first joke? Yeah, right, right. Now, right. now you're, you're panicking. Now I'm talking to God one-on-one. Yeah. Oh, God, man, you got me this far. Don't let me down now. <laughs> Help me do it. There's a, a black guy there who's, who's, he stayed years later even with Jay. He opens a curtain for you. But you're pacing. Now the, the, they're in commercial break. Yeah. And the music stops. Doc Severinsen's playing. The music stops and your heart stops because you're back live. But Johnny Carson says the greatest thing. He says, we're back now. And he only does this for people in their first time. Yeah. He said, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Welcome, Tom Dreesen. Now, he said that one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight, sets that audience up, help this guy. You know, yeah, right. And you walk out, and, they, they, and you open up, they open that curtain, you walk out, you can't see the audience, that bright lights in your eyes, and you're yeah. like in an operating room. Looking for that spot to stand on. Oh, man, on. That, that little green tea. <laughs> yeah. You're looking because, you know, Johnny's tea is over a little bit further to the right. But you hit that mark, and... Oh, boy. And you get that first joke out, and I got to laugh. And I get the second joke out, and I got to laugh. And the third joke, I got to laugh. Now I'm got in a roll. And the fourth joke, I hear Johnny and Ed laughing behind me. Now, man, I can't tell you. I, I, I got about eight applause, and I get to the last joke. I said, you've been a wonderful audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, and show business is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. Will you? <laughs> <laughs> I walk off. I go walk off, and, and Craig Tennis comes running around the corner. I'm, I go through the curtain. He goes, go back, go back, go back. I said, go back, go back and sit by Johnny. He says, no, don't go sit by Johnny, but go back, go back. And I, I go back through the curtain, and they're still applauding, and Johnny gives you that little circle. Yeah. Okay? Okay. Oh, and Mark, I walk back through the curtain, and my whole life change. The following day, CBS signed me to a development deal. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York was watching the show that night and ended up signing me to a development deal. I've never stopped working since that time. Never. I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show after a while. But but that first appearance, I, I got a, CBS signed me to this development deal. I got a check for $10,000. Yeah. In those days, a lot of money. And I got $1,850 a month for one year. They, they were going to try to develop something for me. But in, that meant my rent, my groceries, everything was paid. My rent was in Van Nuys was $225 a month, and I had a wife and three kids in that little apartment. But everything was paid for. Yeah. I could now focus on my career. Next, I, I was doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I'm doing all these shows. And, and, and meanwhile, Sammy Davis Jr. had a show called Sammy and Company. I did his show, and he took me on the road with him for three years. You know, I'm, you know it, 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 it's, I've never stopped working since that first Tonight Show. It's just been a, a, an amazing moment, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and when you come back to the store, then you're, you're like a made guy, too, right? You do the Tonight Show, and everybody at the comedy oh, yeah. store is like, oh, my God. Well, David Letterman will tell you that him and Johnny Dark and George Miller and all of them, they watched yeah. my first appearance at the comedy store uh-huh. in, the, in the back room there yeah. where the TV was, you know. And, and they root for you. I mean, you know, they, they, I mean, there's no greater supporters of comedians than other comedians, in my opinion. I tried to tell the comedians. A few. A few, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I tried to tell the comedians so many times during this strike, 
the rest of your life, comedians are going to get you more work than agents maybe sometimes because if there's, when I started out in show business, there were no comedy clubs in America, none. And then there were 500 of them. Tulsa, Oklahoma had three comedy clubs at one time. I mean, comedy clubs began springing up all of America. So you can't work those clubs 52 weeks a year. So each time you work that club, when you're leaving, you're going to tell the owner, hey, my friend Mark Maron, pretty funny guy. You you know what I mean? You're always going to, comedians are always going to support, you know, not in most cases, support other comedians. But, you know. So so your close friends at the store were, were, were Dave. Right and and uh, Jay Leno and Dave. I mean, Jay, Jay and I, Jay and I were buddies. I mean, Dave, David Letterman and I were closer because we played basketball together. We played racquetball together. Yeah. We jogged together. We, you know, we were, we were real pals, and still are. He's one of my dearest friends. I know in the he world. left here to go have dinner with you. Yeah, yeah, we have we have a great I mean, so, him, him and I and Johnny Witherspoon and Tim Thomerson and then guess what we talked about the, the early days at the comedy store. You know? That's nice. But but uh, Johnny Dark was a dear dear buddy of mine and still is to this day. Johnny Witherspoon, a dear buddy sure. of mine, Tim Thomerson. Yeah, you know we, I've remained friends. There's something about I can make the analogy from stand-up comedy to the military. There's something about being with these guys that when you go through a lot of tough times you bond you just bond and and and, and all that uh, stuff uh, about it's a lesser trauma but it is a trauma it's a trauma because we you know what <laughs> yeah, first yeah. of all comedians know we if somebody tells me he's a stand-up comedian or yeah. she's a stand-up comedian i have immediate respect for them because yeah. we know what it's like up there when it didn't work and those years of struggling it's, it's, and bombing and, and can't get work and can't pay the rent and people are telling you get out of that stupid business oh, and yeah. get yourself a real job it's and, so funny you know, Last night, even you know, I've been doing this half my life now. You know, 30, 35, 35 years, right? And yeah, I do all right. I'm good. But like, you know, I brought Ron White on stage last night. You know, and, and you know, he, you have that moment where you say hi to you know, you're yeah. passing the mic. Yeah, and he goes, "You're getting good." I'm like, "What are you fucking? I'm getting good, you motherfucker." <laughs> I know, I know. Comic comics can be cruel. I think he was serious. Yeah, yeah of course he was. <laughs> like I, I think maybe the first time I registered, you know, in yeah, a way. Yeah, he's seen me a bunch of times. It's very funny. I, I tell you, I think there's nothing greater than to have the respect of your peers. There's For nothing sure. greater. It than, might than, be all you get. Yeah. And David always had you on his show. and yeah. But the fact that 40 years, I mean, what the hell happened in that strike, Tom? I mean, you know, like this is like a defining moment in your life. I mean, here you are, you, you're opening for Sammy, you got a career with Frank, you're a big act, you know, you're making a living. And, and you know, just walk me through what happened with the strike. Well, here, here's what happened, why I never went back. When the strike was over, and it, was, it should have never, ever been But what than, happened? How did it happen? You, you'll hear different versions, but I will tell you the truth. And everybody has their own truth. Okay. But, but I'll tell you, what happened was I came back off the road. Now, the comedy store, when 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 Mitchie first had the comedy store, it was just the one room, the original room. And then- um, What was in the main room then? In the main room, a guy named, um, God, he had like a, a 50s night and all that stuff. Oh. Why can't I think of his name? Anyhow, he then was going to do a comedy thing in that room. Yeah. And Mitchie told all the comedians, if you do that, you'll never work here again and all that stuff. Down the hall. Art LeBeau. Art, Art LeBeau. LeBeau. Art okay. LeBeau. Yeah. She bought that, that that section. She ended up buying that section of, of from him. So from she Art forbids LeBeau. you guys from working well, down she the just, hall. She just kind of said, if he's going to have my be my He's going to compete in the same building? Yeah. Yeah. So we all knew yeah. we were going to be loyal to Mitchie. Right. And, and we were. Yeah. But anyhow, she gets the main room and, and she buys that part of the uh, comedy store. And that's... What a three hundred and something seater, four hundred seater, four hundred seater, yeah, yeah four hundred seater. She starts booking 
stars like Jackie Mason came yeah. in and, and he'd get the door. She'd get the liquor, which is, that's where the money's at, as sure. you know. The door is good, but the, the liquor, yeah. that's where the money is. One night, I come off the road, and, and I'm called in for times. Yeah. We're always working on new material. So I go over there, and um, I go to go in the original room. They said, oh, Tom, you're in the main room. I said, I'm in the main room. In the main room was Robin Williams, Tom Dreesen, Jay Leno, uh, David Letterman, Elaine Boozler. Uh-huh. Place is mobbed, yeah. packed. We all kill and all. But I, even when I went on stage, I thought, wow, this is like we're in Vegas. You know, I'm, I'm like back in Vegas. I go to Cantor's afterward. All the comics hung out at Cantor's. We're all at Cantor's sitting around having a good time. In comes Jay Leno. Man, this is bullshit, man. This is bullshit. You know, you know, she pays them guys. They get the door. You know, it, it, maybe it took five of us to fill the room, but we should get something, you know. Yeah. And now the, I'm, I'm listening. You know, I'm making a living. I'm making six figures a year. I'm doing real good. And, and you don't get paid in the original room at that time. There was no, we no get paid. Pay. We no get paid original room or the Westwood or anywhere, you know. So, so uh, at the comedy club. So anyhow, so I said she thought it was a workshop. She was like doing you guys yes, a favor, yes, right? Okay. Exactly. She that's what she called it a college, a workshop. Yeah. But so I'm listening. I'm, I'm and the, and the comics decide. Let's have a meeting. Let's call all the other comics at me. And I'm I'm home off the road. So I go to the meeting, and it was chaos, utter chaos. They're all talking at the same time. And what are we doing? And it was utter chaos. The only thing they decided at the end of that two hours was they would have another meeting. I went to the second meeting. Same thing. Chaos, everybody, you know. And finally, I just stood up and said, hold it, hold it, you guys, my JC years. I said, you're not getting anything done. Let and me, your union years, yeah. right? I said, let me chair the meeting. Let me just chair the meeting. Yeah. And, and I, would, I finally got him to Robert's Rules of Order, how to chair a meeting. I finally got him calmed down. I say, okay, hold on, hold on. Jay, you have the floor. Gallagher, hold on, Gallagher, hold on one second. Gallagher's Put the hammer down. Yeah, he's yelling, you know, burn the place down. You right. know. <laughs> So I say, let them make a point. Then we'd second the motion, and I got them organized. Mm. When you get them organized, they were a group to really be reckoned with. Yeah. They, was, they were smart kids. My era came out of the, out of the poor neighborhoods, and their era came out of colleges. These yeah. were smart kids. And we said forming committees and subcommittees and what have you. And eventually, they said, will you go talk to Mitzi for us to present the case? And I went to talk to, to Mitzi. To get paid. To get paid. For the I main went, room or all rooms? Anytime you appeared on stage where they had a cover charge. Yeah. We thought in those days the word cover meant to cover the cost of entertainment. Come to find out that wasn't true. I thought I thought that it co cover charge meant to cover the cost of entertainment, but there was nothing definitive in law yeah. that said that. Right. But that's what we thought. So I right. went in. Anywhere you charge a cover charge, the comedian should get a portion of that. Mitchie said, no, I'm, I'm not paying the comedians. They don't deserve to be paid and, and so forth and so on. So, What was a, her argument? A, well, her, her argument was that it's, it's a nightclub. I mean, it's a college. It's, it's a, it's a uh, right, workshop right. Yeah. and so forth and so on. But I, I told Mitchie, um, you know, that you know, they want to be paid. And I think it's fair, Mitchie. I think you should consider it. And, you know, back and forth. And the comedians now were getting more and more organized, more and more organized. And Mitchie just simply wasn't going to do it. One night I took Tim Thomerson, Paul Mooney, George Miller and myself to Mitzi's house. And we sat there at 10 o'clock at night. We're going to talk to her. At 2 o'clock in the morning, Tim Thomerson had fallen asleep. Uh, uh, Paul Mooney was sitting, like he was sleeping on the couch. George Miller was exhausted. And I was the only one left with Mitzi. Still, she would not budge an inch. I'm not paying them, Tommy. They're not being paid. So anyhow, uh, all, all of this is going, I keep taking the information back to the comedians that, that she's not going to pay. Yeah. She just simply is not going to pay. And one night, I'm laying in bed. I was married at the time. I leap up out of bed and scared the hell out of my wife. I said, I got it. She's like, what's wrong? What's? I said, no, I got it. I got it. Why didn't I think of this before? I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I get to her office early in the morning. I'm waiting for her to come in. She comes in. I said, Mitzi, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. 
charge six. I said, let the comedians have that one dollar. That's all. Not going to cost you a dime. It, it, it just charge one dollar more. Right. And if if a hundred people show up, they get to split a hundred bucks for the night. If two hundred people show up, they get to split two. No, no, they don't deserve to be paid. Now that's when that it seemed personal. It numbed me but because what? see, I thought I thought it was about money. Yeah. That's what I thought it was about. Oh, yeah. If it was about money, we could find a solution. But when she said no, that no, that she's not going to pay. When I left there that morning, I was just like numbed out of my head. What I, do you think it was about? Well, I mean, Argus and I have this argument all the time. He said it wasn't about money at all. It wasn't about money at all. But, but, it, but I think it was. I think it was in you. But when what you, was it about? Well, it, 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 you know, in her mind, this was her. In her mind, this was a, a college, a, a learning place where you went on, you got, you learned your craft, and you went out to. Make you don't a think she had any sort of like strange, deep resentment towards comics on some level? You because mean because she Sammy? was married to a comic? Yeah. <laughs> like she's going to make you all pay for that guy? Well, that's what that, you know. She was married for those who were listening and don't understand. She was married to a comedian who just My passed away. By knows, the way, yeah, Sammy Shore. You know, yeah. Uh, but she was married to a comedian for years. So obviously, you know, she went through some tough times with a comedian and she when she divorced him she got the comedy store in the divorce you know uh-huh. but i don't know what it was but it, right. it, it, it it bothered me deeply and and finally I, I i you know i said to her i couldn't convince her and now from my home that my home became combat central you know and in those days you know um we didn't have cell phones and, yeah. and so all the guys all the men and women would be there and we'd had these committees and finally one night they decided let's go on strike the last thing i want to do is go on i'm, I'm I'm from Chicago. I know what a strike is about, and I didn't want to do that. But I called Mitchie, and I said, Mitchie, I'm here with all the comedians. And I had a speakerphone on, on, on the thing. I said, I'm here with all the comedians, and and they're talking about going on strike yeah. tonight, Mitchie. They want to strike this store tonight. Wouldn't you reconsider that we could sit down and at least discuss it? She said, not one red fucking cent. What? And I said, would you repeat that? And she said, not one red fucking And they all yelled, strike, strike. And that night they went on oh strike at God. the comedy store. Now, here's where my dilemma came in. I'm making money. Yeah. I don't really want to get involved in this thing. But now they, all the women get together and the guys get together, the comedians, and they decided when the camera crews, now Steve Bluestein was in charge of, of uh, he was in charge of the publicity committee. So he did an outstanding job. He got ABC, NBC, CBS. He got CNN. He got, he got a variety. He yeah. got Hollywood Reporter. When we pulled out in front of that, when we went to that comedy store that night, the place was jammed with camera trucks and all that stuff and camera crews. And well, they voted not to have all the comedians talk, just have one. Otherwise, we'll dilute our message. Right. So they voted, well, let Tom Dreesen be the <laughs> spokesman. I, I, I regret that to my day. Really? Yes, because it turned me into like Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, I was getting so much... And, I they're, was, and they're picketing with signs. Oh, signs! Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, no, no yucks, no bucks, no yucks. Right, right. Silly, stu- you know. So now you're the guy. And now I, I'm now I'm on uh, on the cover of magazines. I'm like the Jimmy Hoffa, the organizer. Yeah. There were there was rumor all around show business. Don't hire this guy. He's a rabble rouser. He's gonna, you know, you know, you know any oh, really. But so for like six, seven weeks, we're, we're walking the picket line, and, and um, nineteen comedians cross the picket line, or it would have been over in twenty four hours. Oh, but so eighteen she guys had enough to girl. work. Yeah, she Argus. just enough to keep it going. Well, Argus, we knew when we had our brainstorm meetings. We knew Argus because Argus was a very loyal to Mitch, and, and we understood that. And Argus is my dear friend to this day. I think the world of him. Argus Hamilton is a funny, brilliant guy. He's really the only one of your generation that still works there. You know? still there? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I he, see him every night. At well, he, he makes a good makes a good living now because we went on strike. Yeah. So it was him and Ollie and Biff, and who were the other loyalists? If there was only eighteen. 
There was I got the list at home. There were oh. eighteen guys and one girl, and and uh, and and I always I always felt that if they would have stayed with us just twenty four hours, it would have been over. They were too afraid. Well, they, you know, they weren't afraid. They 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 were they were claiming they were more loyal to Mitchie. And 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 you know, we we the comedians of that time talk about this sometimes. There wasn't any of them that were doing mainstream at the comedy store at that time. They weren't headliners. Right. Well, they were desperate and they yeah. needed the stage time. Yeah, they stage. didn't care if they were. Yeah. And was Lubitkin one of them? Yes. Yeah, no, Steve Lubitkin was with us. Why he committed suicide, and that's why I never went back to the comedy store for forty years. When the strike was over and we yeah. won. And, and, and they were going to pay the comedians, and we went through all that kind of stuff. You guys negotiated a, a percentage deal for the main room and a flat rate for the OR. Yes. and, and it still stands, you know. Yeah, I know. And, and I understand you guys are making a nice little few bucks, and I'm happy for you. you we know? do. We, if you play the main room, you do all right. Yeah. I mean, you get a few bucks, yeah. yeah well, I'm, I'm happy for you. Thank, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, thank you for your service. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you the strange two things I want to tell you about yeah. this strike. How it ended. The night that it ended, I had to speak before Screen Actors Guild. They asked me to come and speak and give my spiel, and asked Mitzi's uh, loyalist to speak. So Biff Maynard came, and, and it was Mark Lenau and Joanne Astro and myself, and Biff Maynard and a guy named Danny Mora. They spoke for Mitzi, and, and I spoke uh, pro-comedians, right? Biff Maynard got up, and he's in a room full of artists. He said... Comedians don't deserve to be don't need to be paid. We're artists, and artists don't need to be paid. Well, he's in, he said that in front of a room full of artists, yeah. and, and I saw that that didn't go very well. And yeah, so we're going back and forth. But one of the things that in the middle of the strike, at one point, Mitchie decided she would pay twenty five dollars on weekends only, not weeknights. And I took the offer back to the comedians. I said, "Hey, you guys, we we won. She she will pay twenty five dollars a set." on the weekends, but not weeknights. Yeah. Sundays are weeknights. And the comedians voted against that, saying, hey, anytime he charges a cover charge, we should get a par- part of that. So I had to go back and say, Mitzi, they turned it down, turned down the offer. But she was paying those who crossed the picket line $25 on the weekend. So I said to the, to the audience when I got up, I said, this gentleman just got up and told you that artists don't deserve to be paid. Do you know what he did last weekend? He worked a comedy store and he got $25 on Friday and $25 on Saturday. He got $50 for working the comedy store for the weekend. Yeah. Because we struck, he got the $50. And you know what he did with that $50? He went and got something to eat tonight and then he went and put gas in his car to come over and tell you that we shouldn't be paid. And got applause and all that kind of yeah. stuff, you know. I said, if you don't stand by us, I don't know that we can win this fight. We need your support desperately. I don't know if we can win this fight. It's been a long journey, and we're not getting yeah. the again. Well, they then afterward, they, they they came up to me and said, "We're going to take a full page ad out in Variety and a full page ad out in the Hollywood Reporter, saying that we support you." Now I go back to the comedy store, and I'm telling, um, we're on a picket line, and I'm telling the comedians, "Hey, we did real good. They're going to take an ad." Meanwhile, in the driveway there by the comedy store, where I saw you at the driveway there, Mitchie had gotten an injunction that we couldn't walk across that driveway because it stopped people from coming in. So we had to honor that and only stay to the right of that driveway So when we walked the picket line. Out in the street, I see a car going, racing the engine. Yeah. I look and it's Biff Maynard. And it's and he's waiting to come in. He's, he's facing east. He's waiting to pull in there. He's waiting for the traffic to go by that's going west. And then he's going to pull in. And I see a couple of the comedians, Jay Leno being one of them, in that driveway. And I holler, get out of there. Get out of that driveway. Get out. And I... And that car goes flying into the driveway, and I hear, boom! And he wow. goes flying in the back, and yeah. on the ground is Jay Leno laying on the ground. Yeah. Jay Leno. And I, I said, oh, my God, the girls are crying. He a Jay, he a Jay, he a Jay. 
I'm almost ready now in my brain, Mark, for a nervous breakdown. I've had it. I've had it. I can't take this shit anymore. Jay's laying on the ground. When Biff walks up, I'm going to break his jaw. I'm going to I'm going to fire on him. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to. Yeah. I can, I'm, I'm ready to break. I look down on the ground. I'm telling him, call an ambulance. We didn't have cell phones in those days. You know, so call an ambulance. Call an ambulance right away. Get an ambulance. I look down at Jay, and Jay opens his eyes and he winks at me and he closes <laughs> his eyes again. I went, you son of a bitch, <laughs> you son of a bitch, and he's he's got a big grin. He's laying there, you know. Biff comes out of the car and goes, "You hit Jay? I didn't hit him. I didn't mean it. I didn't hit you." Now everybody's all chaos. Ambulance is coming. Now the ambulance comes, and Jay doesn't want to go. It's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. He hit the car with the side of his hand right. when the car went by. Right. So now Jay's not going to go, but they they have a law. You got to go to the hospital. The paramedics can't release you. Yeah. A doctor's got so had to take him to the hospital. Meanwhile, moments later, they come outside and said, "Mitchy wants to talk to you inside." She said, let's settle this thing tonight. And we sit up to 4 o'clock in the morning. We settled it. Now, the strike is over two or three weeks, about three weeks. I give a farewell speech. I'm going on the road. I had, had $50,000 worth of work with Sammy Davis that I turned down during that strike. Because I, once I got into it, I didn't want to get out of it. Yeah. So I didn't go on the road with Sammy. But now i got to go back on the road again. Yeah. And so I, I said goodbye to all the comedians. Yeah. And I'm leaving. My wife was with me at that time. And I'm leaving, and George Miller wants to talk to me, and, and, and um, uh, Steve Lebeckin wants to talk to me, and all the comics are talking to me. And, and I said, look, you guys, I got to go, I got to go. And Steve Lebeckin said, Tommy, I called in for times three times in a row. She won't let me on. She won't let me on. If you leave the group, if you leave the group, you know, we'll lose our strength and all that stuff. I said, look, I'm not leaving the group, Steve. Now George Miller sent her. I said, George, wait, I got to go. My wife is saying, we got to go. You're late. And I said, Steve, Steve. Look, it's in the contract. She can't retaliate against anybody who walks the picket line. Yeah. He said, but I called in three times in a row, and she won't give me any times. And I said, Steve, look, and finally, my wife is saying, we've got to go. I said, finally, I said, Steve, I said, Steve, I put my hands on his shoulder. I said, Steve, I won't go back to you go back. I give you my word. I won't go back to you go back. And he looked forlorn and everything. He said, okay, now we leave. I go to the meeting. I, I go to Tahoe. Yeah. I'm there a few days, and I get a call from Jay Leno 15 minutes before I go on stage. And he says, you know, Steve Lebeckin committed suicide. He jumped off the top of the Continental Hyatt House next, next door to the comedy yeah. store. And he dove toward the comedy store. And he left a suicide note saying, my name is Steve Lebeckin. I used to work at the comedy store. That was his suicide note. You know, and, and, and that just destroyed it for me. Uh, I, just, I just said this whole thing was so stupid. So could have been over in 24 hours. You know, I'm, I'm not blaming... Uh, anybody on Steve's death, Steve obviously was a troubled person. You yeah. Know? It just, it was so unnecessary, the whole thing. I just said, I'm never going back. Because I said to him, I won't go back to you go back. And of course, 40 years later, I went back for Mike Binder when he asked me to do it, you know. But well, that's the story. How did it feel to go back? It was, it was strange. It was almost like going back to high school, mm. you know. I mean, it, it's, I have a lot of fond memories there and everything. Uh, when I went on stage that night, it was fun, you know, and, and, and Mike filmed it. Um, I didn't feel the camaraderie that I felt, sure, because obviously my my class was long since gone, yeah. you know. But uh, but I have to say, the comedians were just really, really, really good to me. I mean, when I went there, all the comedians, the young kids that I didn't know, yeah. never knew. Uh, some I've heard of, you know, sure. like Mark Maron, uh -huh. kid, been only been doing it thirty five years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but everybody was really nice, really complimentary, and say, you know, welcome back, and yeah. and I'm glad you're here, and 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 we, we've been getting paid, and you know. Uh, I, I remember years ago, uh, a comedian came up to me and he said, hey, somebody told me once that you guys used to work for free. I said, yeah. He said, the first time I ever went on stage, I got paid. I said, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs>
So now, you know, after all these years, you know, you work for Sinatra, how long? 14 years. And, and 45, 50 cities a year for 14 years. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. What did you learn from him? Well, he was, he was probably the most generous guy I've ever met in my life. I, I learned about punctuality. I learned about the show is the most important thing. Uh-huh. Frank would party all night long. You want to party, he'd party. He'd drink you under the table and four like you, you know. But showtime, you didn't mess with that. The show is the most important thing. No matter what. No matter what. Everybody better know their job. Cause did he, he always deliver? He always delivered. He was he was a consummate pro. Yeah. He was just a pro. But but also he he taught me a lot about show business. He taught me Sammy Davis Jr. really taught me a lot. I would sit in the wings and watch Sammy. Sam, there wasn't anything Sammy couldn't do on a stage. First time I ever went to Vegas, my very first time opening for Sammy Davis, it was uh, show. You know, I was getting near showtime in, in the afternoon. We had uh, he had a rehearsal. Now I'm all alone, the room's empty. I walked out on the stage and I'd never been in Vegas before yeah. and I'm at Caesar's Palace and I'm looking around, looking at getting familiar with the stage. Yeah. And Sammy saw me and he came out and he said, Are you nervous, babe? I said, Well, it's my first time in Las Vegas and opening for you. He said, See these boards? He looked down at he said, See these boards on the stage? You earned every one of these boards. This is your stage. Don't let them take that from you. If they could do what we do, they'd be up here. They can't do what we do. That's why they're out there and we're up here. This is your stage. Don't let them take that from you. And, and, and now, I'll tell you something else. Caesars in those days served yeah. food. And when they served food, the comedian dies. Because the opening act, you were in front of all that food being served and being taken. When a headliner came on, all that stuff better be out of the room. All the, t- you know, all the waiters and waitresses and all the food out of the room. So the headliner, you had to set them up. So working Caesars, A, it's the toughest room in Vegas to work because it's got a high ceiling. Yeah. We like a low ceiling. Laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and comes back at us. Yeah. So the lower the ceiling, the better the room. The Sands, the Desert Inn, the Riviera, great showrooms. The Caesars was the toughest. Sammy said at the the rehearsal, that Brandywine was a conductor. He said, Tommy, you'll do 20 minutes. Sammy does an hour and 10. We do 90-minute shows here. Sammy said, hold on, Nat. This is Tommy's first time in Las Vegas. He's got a score. I'll come out and I'll do three songs, maybe four, and then I'll bring Tommy out. And he said, and Tommy, you do whatever time it takes when you feel you got him. And he said, if it takes more than 20 minutes, do 25, do whatever. He said, and then I'll make up the rest of the time. And Nat said, well, it's your show, Sammy. You do whatever you want. Sammy would come out while they're serving dinner. He would come out and sing three or four songs. Waiters and waitresses were pulling food away from people. <laughs> they weren't even finished eating yet because yeah. you know, <laughs> he had to clear the room. And then Sammy would introduce me. He'd say, ladies and gentlemen, my audience has been wonderful to me all these years. I feel like my audience is family. And when family does something good for you, you want to do something for them, like maybe get them a present. I got a gift for you. I saw this kid. This is the way he'd introduce me. And now you're, you're going, oh my God, don't overdo this introduction. Yeah. But he, and, and I would go out and, and he said, Tommy, he told me, he said, Tommy, if you get good reviews your first time in Vegas, you'll come back. You'll be able to come back. Yeah. He also put my name on the marquee, which a lot of times opening acts didn't get on the marquee. He said, if I put your name on the marquee, whoever you work for after this, we set a precedent. Anyhow, he taught me more about children's and Frank and, and Dean. I mean, so I he really, he, like, not unlike Carson, like Sammy set you up in Vegas. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. And, and, and I, 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 every time I go there, and I worked there for years and years, and I still work there. But, you know, when every time I go there, I, I thank him. Thank you, Sammy, you know, for what he did. And, and, and just, just taught me so much. And same way, Frank taught me more about, um, I mean, punctuality, uh-huh. show business. And, and also, he was the kindest man I ever met in my life. One time working with Frank, we were at the Waldorf Astoria in New yeah. York, and we were going out to do a gig. We, were, we came out the back door because Frank couldn't go out the front. He'd be mobbed. And he had an apartment in the back. 
as we're rushing to the limousine, a woman jumped out of the doorway. The doorman told me she'd been there for like five hours. And she's screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra. And the security's rushing them to the limo. And she kept hollering, please, Mr. Sinatra. And the security was holding her back. Frank finally turned around and he went back to her. He said, what is it? She said, my husband is home sick. And if you would sign an autograph, it would mean the world to him. It would, and he said, Frank said, sure. And he signed in the autograph and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. They were $2,000 cufflinks. I know where he got them at. And she said, what beautiful cufflinks. He said, thank you. And when he finished the autograph, he took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her. He said, give these to your husband. She said, no, no, I don't want them. I don't want them. I just was admiring. He said, no, I want your husband to have them. We get in the limo and I said, Frank, that was beautiful what you did, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And I never, I never forgot that. He said, it's okay if somebody said, I love your Mercedes Benz and you don't give it to them. But when you get shaving in the morning and you're looking in the mirror at that guy, you got to admit to that guy in the mirror, that car owns you because you can't give it away. Huh. And many things like that he did. He, he was like, when I first went to Frank Sinatra, he was the boss. Yeah. Later on, he became like a buddy, a pal. Uh-huh. And then toward the end, uh, he was like a father to me and gave me a lot of great advice, you know. And, uh, and I miss him every day of my life. Touring with him, I can't even describe you how exciting that was. It's like being an altar boy and serving mass for the Pope or something, I guess, you know. Every night. Every night. Every night was an exciting night. Every night was, you know, flying in his private jet all over the world, landing. Funny guy? Well, he liked being funny, but he wasn't always funny. (laughs) But I knew, see, Frank, there's two types of drink, three types of drinkers. I used to say when I was a bartender, I used to call it the three hours, you know. My buddies would go to one of the three hours when they're drinking. Uh, a couple of drinks, and they'd become uh, Rocky Marciano. They want to fight everybody yeah. in the place. Or a couple of drinks, they become Rudolph Valentino. They want to fuck everybody in the yeah. place. Or a couple of drinks, they become Rip Van Winkle, and they want to sleep. Frank was Rocky. A couple of drinks, and Frank got pretty testy. Yeah. But I, I could see it coming, and I would change the subject all the time. The staff used to love it when I'd hang with him till dawn, because if I could see him going in that area... Oh, I'd get say, him off the rant? I'd say, tell, tell me about that time when you and Dean... Did, oh, yeah, 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 and you know, and he'd tell me this story. So like, he started, uh, like, get, you felt like he was getting angry about something? Yeah, because yeah. he'd get a little testy after a few drinks, you know. Yeah. But but he, he we had just said, I had a wonderful relationship with him. I made up my mind when I first started turning with Frank Sinatra, if he ever went off on me, and I seen him go off on a lot of people, if he ever went off on me, I was going to reach over and shake his hand and say, Frank, thank you so much for the years I've been with you, and this is it, and walk away. Because yeah. I, I didn't want a bad, I, didn't, I wasn't going to be his whipping boy. You didn't want to take boy. it, right. No, I wasn't going to be his whipping boy or anybody's whipping boy, but, right. but, but he ne- that day never came. <laughs> we just had such a wonderful relationship. and, and uh, Never came. Yeah. I got, I got tapes of him where he brings me back on stage. Tommy, come back. Every night when I do my show, he'd bring me back for another bow. Tommy, come back and take another bow. He said, Tommy, he said, there's my man, my number one man. I've got those tapes, you know. And that, that, I can't tell you, I was a little boy shining shoes in Harvey in the bars and on every jukebox, Sinatra was singing. Yeah. And I, when I came out of the service, I'm tending bar and I'd hear him on the jukebox, come fly with me, let's fly away. And now I was flying with him in a private jet. <laughs> We're going into Chicago to do the Chicago theater in my hometown where I used to shine shoes. Yeah. And then and, and he'd say to me, we're gonna knock him dead tonight, Tommy. And I, I'm thinking, I'm pinching myself. Jeez. I'm, That's great. Yeah, it was, you, you were with him till the end? Yeah, till the very last song he ever sang, which was The Best Is Yet To Come. And on his tombstone, it says, The Best Is Yet To Come, Francis Albert Sinatra. Yeah. And he knew the family and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew my kids. And he was, he, was just, he was just good to me. And his wife, Barbara, they were just so good to me. You know, during that 14 years I toured with Frank, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. I turned down more shows. I had more opportunities. But I was 
I was playing golf on a golf tour called the Celebrity Players Tour, uh-huh. which is basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Marilyn Moo, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan, 42 Hall of Famers. I'm competing with these great athletes in 12 cities a year, and I'm flying with Frank Sinatra in his private jet. Christopher Morley once said, success is living the life you want. I was living the life I wanted. I was living this dream, and I didn't want to give that up to go work with an ensemble group that every other day they were bitching and moaning, complaining because you got more laughs than they got. Or, or, or you got it, executives to deal with, or they might cancel the show, or yeah. they, you know, the writer's going to make you say things you don't want to say. I mean, yeah. You're right. You nailed it. That's exactly, I had all this freedom, and here I was. If somebody would have told me when I was a little boy shining shoes, hear that guy singing on the jukebox? Yeah. One day he's going to have you in his home, and one day he's going to fly with you in a private, you're going to be with him in a private jet, and you're going to grace the same stage as Frank Sinatra. I'd say that's impossible. <laughs> if somebody would have said to me when I was a little boy, you know all those athletes you admire? One day you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your life. You're going to get into an arena, and you're going to compete against the greatest athletes who ever lived in your lifetime. I'd say, that's impossible. That'll never happen. But I was doing both of those things. How's your golf game? I'm, I'm, when I leave you, I'm heading right to the golf course right now. we got a 1 o'clock tee Oh, time. boy, we better get you out of here. <laughs> uh, well, God damn it. It was an honor talking to you. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm honored because, first of all, I've done my research on you, and, and you got a whole lot of listeners, you know, a whole lot of, and I admire you for that. And you you had the President of the United States on your show? Sure, yeah. How, how about that? Yeah. Did you ever think about that? No. That one day you'd be interviewing the President? In my of house. Your, in your house, the President. I, I got to be honest with you, Tommy. You, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a tight competition between, you know, who I was more nervous about, you know, interviewing in my house, President Obama or David Letterman, because, you know, for me, like you were with Carson, you know, Letterman was like that for me. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I spent most of my life, God, how do I get, I got to be on Letterman. Yeah. And then you get the one Letterman and then you got, how do I get another one? Yeah. And I did maybe four or five. And I don't think he re- it really necessarily even registered to him, but the fact that he was coming over, yeah. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You know, we we are we're a bunch of little kids who are fulfilling these dreams, and 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 if you know you know why I stayed with Frank Sinatra so long, he never knew how much in awe of him I was. He never knew that because yeah. I never let him see that. When I I don't know maybe it was being a bartender, Played a regular guy. Well, like when I was a bartender, I could read people. Sometimes you read people yeah, how different they sure. were. But s- somehow I picked up when I first met him that he had millions of fans. Yeah. He didn't need another fan. Right. He didn't need another guy standing there with a job and, gosh, Frank, you were great tonight. Yeah, right. When he was great. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd, I'd say, great crowd tonight. I, yeah, they came to play. You know, we would we'd talk like that. Uh, he, he, I, I picked up on that, and, and he never knew how much in awe of him I was. He was, he was uh, you know, th- this is a guy... Forget about that he's the greatest pop singer of all time. Yeah. Forget about all that. Yeah. What about that he danced with Gene Kelly? He danced with Gene Kelly, for Christ's sake. Not only that, what about that he won the Academy Award, never took an acting lesson. Never took an acting lesson. Was that Man with the Golden Arm? No, from Here to Eternity. He should have yeah. won with The Man with the Golden Arm yeah. or The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. One night sitting with Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, uh, uh, um, Clint Eastwood, Robert Wagner, uh, Jack Lemmon, we're yeah. all sitting in Frank's backyard about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they were talking film and, yeah. and directing, and I'm just, I'm this little kid from Harvey, Illinois. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm just hanging on every word. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me when they're talking about it, I noticed that all these actors are showing such great reverence to Frank. So I said to him, did you ever study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm real hard. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. 
you know, that's why whenever you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. Yeah. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? He would immerse himself in the lyric and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him and you're never going to find love again. And you felt that pain. Yeah. You felt that. Or the joy of a song. Come fly with me. Yeah. Let's fly away. I mean, he, he was a, a, a brilliant actor and never took an acting lesson. Yeah. You know, this, this is, he, was, he was a special... How many living legends are you honestly going to meet in your lifetime? He was truly a living legend. I only met a couple. Yeah. yeah. Besides me. Mom. Yeah. I was only counting you. <laughs> <laughs> Great talking to you, Tom. Oh, you too, Mark. This Have a good of, game. This was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. All right. That was Tom Dreesen. A little bit of history for you. You can see his one-man show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. Go to Tom Dreesen, D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com for dates and locations. Go to sortoftrust.com for dates and times and where you can see that film. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for my upcoming tour dates in uh, many places. I'm, I'm going to be in Houston, Austin, uh, Dallas, Detroit, Chicago, Portland, uh, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, uh, Nashville, Atlanta. Go check. All right? I gotta go. I'm not at home. I'm hot. No music today. Boomer lives!